It's January 10th, 2021. We have our first black senator-elect from Georgia in these United States of Anarchy. That's right, domestic terrorism, the likes of which no one has ever seen. Shockwaves hit the hip-hop community over the week when Dr. Dre needed a doctor on Tuesday. Going to go over the television shows Fraggle Rock and The Sopranos, as they both premiered on January 10th in 1983 and 1999, respectively. It's Bama and those Buckeyes for the national championship, and everyone's favorite point guard dropped 60-plus last Sunday. My favorite point guard decided not to play without telling anyone. Trumpers getting trampled. Trumpers killing Trumpers, and Trumpers killing themselves, and it makes my jeans jump. Across the country and around the world, across the street and around the corner, this is Over the Culture. This is Over the Culture podcast, where you get to hear my spin on things I like, like music, sports, sports entertainment, movies, TV shows, and your mom. You also get to hear about things I don't like, like Kyle and Karen and the Al Kada, the Cow Kada. Fuck y'all niggas. What's up, everybody? I'm your bastard of ceremonies, the one gig kid, Pat Stay Black, Alex Treblack, Reefer Sutherland, Luke Fly Talker, the most interesting blurred in podcasting, the troller of trolls, the prince of petty. This tall can of twisted tea is Steve G. And this is over the culture. Do you know who my dad is? Sup, nigga. What's up, my people, my cultivating cultivists, my kings and queens, my brothers and sisters, mi amigos, mi amigas, mon amis. What's up, my niggas? How y'all feeling on this cold-ass Sunday? I took a week off, and I told you I was. If you listened to the last episode, I said I was going to take a break. I'm going to take a week off so I can prepare for my new show. Uh, yes, that's right. We have a new show, and it's called Happened in the 90s. Uh, it's me and my buddy Matt, and we talk about things that happened in the 90s. Our pilot episode was on Thursday, this past Thursday, on the 7th. And it's available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, Apple Podcasts, Your Mama's Podcast. It's available on all those streaming platforms. Whenever, Wherever you can get a fucking podcast, it'll be there. Happened in the 90s. Check that out. Also, check out my friend Matt's podcast, Life is Funny. So, yeah, the last episode we talked about an episode of Fresh Prince, an episode of Full House, amongst other things, 90s. And damn, 2021, you're already doing the absolute fucking most. You're already doing the most. And I'm going to need you to just chill. I'm going to need you to sit your ass the fuck down, bro. 2021, okay? Tuesday, I went out and voted. January 5th was the last day to vote this runoff campaign for this runoff election. And, you know, I voted for Raphael Warnock. His name is Raphael Warnock. Not radical liberal, not radical leftist. His name is Raphael Warnock. And for those motherfuckers who don't know his name, oh, you might as well now because he is the first black Senate the first black senator of the state of Georgia. We made history again, flipping this fucking state. We just keep flipping and flipping and flipping and damn, these honkies just cannot take it. It hurts their breath. It hurts their lungs. This fucking flipping that we're doing down here in Georgia, oh man, it's causing COVID for these honkies. And I ain't talking about white people, I'm talking about honkies. I'm not talking about Caucasians, I'm talking about honkies, all right? 
Just so that we're clear. I went out and voted for Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, and a gentleman by the name of Daniel Blackman. I was in and out of that ballot. I was in and out of that booth within five minutes. Those picks were a no-brainer. Raphael Warnock, psh, got him. John Ossoff, got him. And the last guy, his name is Daniel Blackman. Oh, psh, this is a no-brainer. Yep, give me my little peach sticker. Proud to say I voted in Georgia this time around. And on that same day, that same Tuesday, uh, I get news that Dr. Dre had to go to the hospital. He had an aneurysm uh, because these gold digging heifers are fucking digging in his pockets, man. These gold digging heifers, man, just trying to dig deep in his pockets. You know, as y'all know that he's getting a divorce from his wife and the bitch want more than what she's going to get. And... You wasn't with the man shooting in the gym. You wasn't in the booth creating these beats. You wasn't in the booth. You wasn't in the fucking lab writing lyrics. Bitch, can you even write a 16? And with all due respect to Mr. Andre Young, I hate to call your ex-wife a bitch, but damn, man, you the homie. I grew up on your music. You have contributed to the culture. What has she done besides have your children? What the fuck? What the fuck? I ain't got shit to do with me. What the fuck, man? This man has been through so much growing up in the mean streets of Compton in the 80s and 90s, dealing with Suge Knight's bullshit, dealing with Easy e You know, and this shit damn near drove him to his deathbed, man. Leave these crazy heifers alone, man. I, you know, I hope everyone learns from this. Leave these gold-digging heifers alone. If they can't bring shit else besides Coochie to the table... Leave them where they're at. Let them be where they are. Peace. Adios. All of that shit. Get the fuck all the way out of here with that shit counting that man's pockets. Now, luckily, Dr. Dre, he's still alive. He's well. He said he's getting better. And thoughts and prayers to Dr. Dre in the whole camp to his family besides his ex-wife now Wednesday that's when the shit went down what a hump day January 7th man Al Cracker Al KKK Kyle Kata the Karens and the Kyles and the Kevins damn they wanted to represent didn't they they do anything for clout they do Anything for clout. Any fucking thing. And apparently, Blue Lives Matter, but ironically to y'all, it didn't. Just ask the family of Officer Sicknick. Yeah, that's right. Officer Sicknick. Don't know who he is? Well, he was an officer that died after being injured. Uh, his name is Brian D. Sicknick, and he passed away due to injury sustained while on duty. He was trampled by the Trumpers, the same people who claim that Blue Lives Matter. Well, uh, this was a guy who was serving and he was on duty and uh, he died. He died out of because of your ignorance, their ignorance. 
These are the same people that said blue lives matter. These are the same people that said all lives matter. But isn't it ironic that there was a woman from the state of Georgia who was carrying around a tread on me flag. Don't tread on me flag. And that bitch got tread on. That bitch died from getting trampled by Trumpers. But all lives matter. Don't they Trumpers? All lives are supposed to matter. But it didn't in that instance. And, you know, another woman was shot. She was shot by the police. And do I have any empathy? Do I have any sympathy? Fuck no. I can't even find the smallest violin to play for this bitch. Moment of silence. Fuck that shit. Hell no. You ain't getting shit. Do I feel bad saying this? No, because these are some of the same people who had no empathy for Tamir Rice. These are some of the same people who had no sympathy for Trayvon Martin. These are the same people who had no sympathy for George Floyd, for Ahmaud Arbery, for Sandra Bland. These are the motherfuckers who were justifying their deaths for their assassinations, for their murders in broad daylight. These are the same motherfuckers who justified the deaths of these unarmed black people. My brothers and sisters, And you cannot equate the protest that happened last year. You cannot equate or compare the protest that came about because of of social injustice. You can't compare those protests to these riots that happened because their favorite person didn't win. Well, 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 I'm just going to... Take my controller out of the socket and just throw it against the wall because my person didn't win. I want a recount. Voter fraud. And your king, your president, their president, just sat there and watched and smelled his own shit, feeling good about himself. And now, some of his fellow GOP members, they want nothing to do with this motherfucker. Apparently, Mr. Pence, he was fuming. He was turning pink. Hank Hill's dad just can't, he's had it to the point where he wants to replace the man. It don't even matter because both y'all niggas gone. This is 25th Amendment, 26, 27, 28, 21, 21. It doesn't fucking matter. It does not fucking matter because Pence, you out of here, and Donald John, you out of here. Melanoma, Baron Baron rhymes with Karen, Jared the Joke. By the way, happy birthday, Jared Kushner. Fuck you too, nigga. All y'all niggas have to fucking go. I don't give a fuck if Pence is going to carry out the remainder of this term. It does not fucking matter because all y'all niggas are going. I. Scram. Beat it, toots. Calm down, Steve. What's the matter? These funky honkies are the fucking problem. That's what's the matter. And you want to know why Colin Kaepernick kneeled? You want to know why? Back in 2004, the Honorable... Jason Phillips, Mr. Jadakiss himself, famously quoted, why? And we're still scratching our heads 16 years, 17 years later, asking that same fucking question, why? 
Why did it take so long to get these fucking assholes handcuffed? Some of them still out here roaming around in these streets free. Because in those Black Lives Matter protests, the military was lined up at the steps waiting. But these fucking cocksuckers, these funky honkies could just march right in there? Why? Oh, because some of those funky honkies are the ones wearing the badge. Some of those funky honkies are wearing the badge and open up the gate like this is goddamn Disney World. Like this is fucking Cedar Point. Opening day at Six Flags. Of course this shit was planned. From the inside out. There's no fucking way. There's no other explanation. Besides the fact that these niggas knew exactly what the fuck was going to happen. And to the bitch that got shot in her throat. I wish you could get back to life and get shot in your throat again. Feel that. Taste those. Because bitch you ain't had no business being there in the first place. What are you fighting for? What kind of revolution is this? What kind of civil war is this? Y'all got the game all wrong. Sipping on that Kool-Aid all you want. Now y'all look like fucking idiots. Ashley Babbitt, that was the bitch's name. And fuck her. The other motherfuckers, Benjamin Phillips of Ringtown, Pennsylvania. Kevin Greeson, 55 of Athens, Alabama. And Roseanne Boylan, 34 of Kennesaw, Georgia. Yeah, that was the dumbass Trumper who got trampled by her own people. Talking about, don't tread on me. Well, psh, here, hold my beer. Bitch, I'm about to trample your ass. Kevin Greeson, the, the 55-year-old of Athens, Alabama, he apparently had a history of high blood pressure and suffered a heart attack amid the excitement. He got so excited that he died. Oh, man, you got sugar sugar, don't you? But you know what it really was? The motherfucker tased himself in the nuts. Yep. Sometimes the jokes write themselves. Rest in peril. You know, we've all seen the videos. We've seen the memes several times over at this point. All right. To think that you can just approach an officer like you won't smoke. And the fact that the officer is running away, you're punking an officer, someone who's supposed to serve and protect. And this is the capital. Nigga, I can't even sneeze wrong around an officer at the fucking quickie mark without being harassed. These motherfuckers busted through, kicked, screamed, shot, punched, killed. They even killed a fucking officer. These domestic terrorists. And I thought Raphael Warnock, I thought the liberals were supposed to be so radical. I thought it was supposed to be the liberals. I thought I thought it was supposed to be the left that they were anticipating doing all of this shit. All of these shenanigans if Biden lost, if Trump won. 
That's what they were putting out there. That's the kind of energy. That's what they were trying to say what was going to come to fruition. But lo and behold, all oh, the irony. Trump didn't win. Biden did. And the ones who are being radical aren't liberals. And no, it wasn't Antifa disguised as the fucking MAGAs. How can you put up an act like that? That's way, way, way too involved. Why the fuck would Antifa disguise themselves as the MAGA nation and do all of that? Damn, give these motherfuckers an Oscar. You talking about method acting? Psh, man, I am impressed. Spielberg, Scorsese, get these motherfuckers on the horn because they pulled off a great act. Damn, that's Antifa because I sure as fuck thought it was some chili bean out of the can for supper eating motherfuckers. Antifa? Oh, man, you fooled me because I thought this was the fucking Southern Baptist uh, revivalation, revitalization, whatever, fucking revival, fucking first cousin kissing cocksuckers. That's what I thought that was. Damn, you had me fooled. Enough of those assholes. Shout out to Stacey Abrams, though. Stacey Babrams putting in that work. You go, girl. You got a man? Shit. Not enough can be said about Stacey Abrams, man. She put in some work down here in Georgia, man. She had a team. Went. They would. They did the old-fashioned shit, going door to door, making phone calls. You know. The works. Speaking of putting in work, everybody's favorite point guard, Steph Golden Graham Curry, uh, he lit up the town with 62 points last Sunday, and that's good for him. They actually won a game, uh, him and Pink Mouth. Uh, but it is what it is, man. You're still missing Clay with the K. You're not going to win a championship with that damn team. With that rock and jock MTV basketball team it might as well be Steph Curry, Dan Cortez Jaleel White uh, Alfonso Ribeiro and Flavor Flav on that goddamn court you're gonna have to drop 60 plus if you're gonna uh, if you plan on winning it all but you're not and I'm fine with that motherfucker you got three rings go to bed my favorite point guard is still Kyrie Irving the flat earther he's a fucking young uh, he's a grown toddler. He puts his foot in his mouth from time to time. But I like to think that his heart's in the right place. And because of the bullshit of these funky honkies on Wednesday, he decided not to play. He said, fuck that shit. And I have to rock with that. But what I can't rock with, Kyrie, Flat Earther Irving, Cap'n Crunch, the king of Cap'n. What I can't rock with is that you didn't tell anybody. You just closed yourself off. Now you got your coach, Steve Nash, looking like an asshole. He's like, man, I, I called the man. I, I tried to hit him up, and I, I didn't get an answer. I don't know what the hell. We, we got a game tonight, and my star point guard is nowhere to be found. So you got to handle your business better, man. Just tell the nigga, hey, man, I ain't coming into work tonight. And that would have sufficed. Because, hey, you run the show. You are the fucking athlete. You're the one bringing asses to seats. Well, I guess because of COVID, 
no asses are coming to the seats. But hey, you are the reason why people are tuning in. People are buying your jerseys. People are buying your shoes. People want to see you do what you do, Kyrie. If that Capitol Hill, the Caucasian cum explosion, if that's the reason for you not wanting to play that day, I get it. But I like Steve Nash too, man. And this is his first year on the job. And he's Canadian. Canadians are cool. Don't leave him hanging, man. Let him know what the fuck is up. Say, hey, man, I'll, I'll pay this little bullshit fee or whatever. But yeah, man, I'm not feeling it tonight. I got a feeling when KD comes back, man, they're going to be a tough. They're going to be a tough one. It's going to be Nets and the Lakers. That's my pick. I said it. Tonight, the Browns have the Steelers, and I'm so happy for the Browns. It's been 18 years, man. 18 years since they've seen this side of the season. Do this for Ernest Biner, Browns. Do this for Tim Couch. Matter of fact, don't do shit for Tim Couch. Fuck Tim Couch. But do this for Browns Nation, for the Dog Pound. Do this for the state of Ohio, man. You guys have been the redhead stepchild for the longest in the NFL. And it's a new day. It's a new day. Yes, it is. Speaking of new day, that Ryan Day. Ryan Day, the coach of the Ohio State Buckeyes, has a big game tonight himself. He goes against Nick Saban in Bama, Crimson Tide. Now, the last time Ohio State played Alabama, we had Urban Meyer, the urban legend as our coach, and we handed them their fucking asses on a silver platter. Got a different coach. It's a new day. It's a new Ryan Day, but we still coming for your fucking neck, just like they came for Ashley Babbitt's neck. <laughs> oh, my God. But we ain't scared of you niggas. Ask Dabo. What was that you say, Dabo? We're ranked 11. We're not even in your top 10, Dabo. Dabo? Oh, didn't we just beat you, Dabo? Oh, you think we're ranked 11, Dabo? So what does that make you, like, like 12? I mean, man, no, you can't even be 12 because we beat the fuck out of you, Dabo. So you probably, what, 18th? <laughs> and we only we only played about, what, five, six games at that point? But we still beat you, Dabo. So, I, I mean, you got beat by, by a five-game playing team. So you ain't even in the top 25, Dabo. Yeah, ask Dabo about the Buckeyes, Nick Saban. Ask Dabo. Oh, Dabo, no. He didn't know. He didn't know, but he Dabo know now. Ask that motherfucker. And I get it. Y'all got three out of the five Heisman finalists. Y'all always got a name or two floating around in the Heisman ballot and all of that shit because you're Alabama and Nick Saban and all that. We them Buckeyes, motherfucker. The Ohio State Buckeyes. And we ain't never scared. Check us out tomorrow. National Championship. Alabama Crimson Tide. The Ohio State Buckeyes. Let's do it.
today in sports history. In 1945, no one is elected to baseball's Hall of Fame. In 1957, baseball commissioner Ford Frick rules that Bing Crosby can keep token stock of the Detroit Tigers, even though he owns part of the Pittsburgh Pirates. In 1967, the 17th NBA All-Star Game is held at Cow Palace in San Francisco, California. West beat the East 135-120. to The MVP is Rick Barry, the small forward of the Warriors. In 1982, the NFC Championship is held at Candlestick Park in San Francisco. The San Francisco 49ers beat the Dallas Cowboys 28-27. This game features the catch, one of the most iconic moments in NFL history, as Dwight Clark makes a fingertip catch for a touchdown from Joe Montana with 58 remaining. San Francisco goes on to win the Super Bowl. And on that same day, the AFC Championship is held at Riverfront Stadium in Cincinnati. The Cincinnati Bengals beat the San Diego Chargers 27-7 in what was called the Freezer Bowl. In 1984, Luis Aparicio, Harmon Killebrew, and Don Drysdale are elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. In 1985, Lenny Wilkins becomes the first to coach in 1,000 NBA games when his Seattle Supersonics defeat the Golden State Warriors 89-86. In 1986, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar of the Los Angeles Lakers scores his 34,000th career point during a 124-102 win over the Indiana Pacers. He becomes the only NBA player to reach the milestone at that time. He remains the all-time leader with 38,387 points. In 1989, LA Kings center Wayne Gretzky becomes NHL's all-time leading scorer in combined regular season and playoff points. With four assists and the 5-4 home win over Edmonton, brings his total to 2011, one more than Gordie Howe. In 1990, the NCAA approves random drug testing for college football players. In 1996, Jimmy Johnson is announced as the new coach of the Miami Dolphins. And on that same day, Boston guard Dana Barrow sinks a three-point field goal in his 89th straight game during the Celtics' 113-104 win over the Sacramento Kings. The NBA record streak ends in the next game when he goes 0 from 9. In 1998, Utah Jazz head coach Jerry Sloan wins his 600th NBA game with a 111-84 victory against the Houston Rockets. And on that same day, Vancouver Canucks veteran center Mark Messier becomes the sixth player in NHL history to record 1,000 assists in a 2-2 tie against the Florida Panthers at General Motors Place. In 2003, NBA announces Charlotte, North Carolina is awarded an NBA expansion franchise to be known as the Charlotte Bobcats and start play in 2004-2005. Eventually, they would change their name back to the Charlotte Hornets for the 2014-15 season. And in 2011, the 13th BCS National Championship is held at University of Phoenix Stadium. Number one Auburn beats number two Oregon, 22 to 19. And that was my half-assed sports report. Coming up, we're going to go over the TV shows Fraggle Rock and The Sopranos. We'll be black after these messages. Today's birthdays for January 10th. Happy 41st birthday to American football player Deshaun Foster. Turning 46 today is American football player Jake DeLone. Happy 48th birthday to Puerto Rican American boxer Felix Trinidad. Also 48 today is American basketball player gold medalist Glenn Big Dog Robinson. Turning 68 today is American singer-songwriter Pat Benatar. Happy 72nd birthday to American boxer, actor, and businessman George Foreman. I actually met George Foreman in Houston. I was a production assistant for this short-lived Simon Cowell show called American Inventor. And 
he was one of the judges. And I like he was walking down the hall as we were getting prepared to to tape the show. And I couldn't pass up this opportunity. I was like, hey, what's up, champ? And he's like, hey, my man. And he gave me a high five. And this was George Foreman in his probably early to mid 60s at this point. And his hand was about as big as my fucking head. And so I can't imagine what it'd be like when he was in his prime and just throwing these things at your fucking face. Damn. Happy birthday, champ. And happy 76th birthday to British singer-songwriter Rod Stewart. Emergency! Climb! Emergency! Climb! Emergency! Climb! 
mention to those no longer with us. Last Sunday, we lost American author Eric Jerome Dickey. Born July 7, 1961 in Memphis, Tennessee, he wrote several crime novels involving grifters, ex-cons, and assassins, the latter novels having more diverse settings, moving from Los Angeles to the United Kingdom to the West Indies, each having an international cast of characters. On January 3, 2021, Dickey died of cancer in Los Angeles, California at the age of 59. His death was confirmed in an official statement from his publisher, Dutton. The New York Times obituary described Dickey as one of the most successful black authors of the last quarter century. Last Monday, we lost American actress, producer, and model Tanya Roberts. Born to Victoria Lee Bloom on October 15, 1955 in New York City, she is best known for playing Julie Rogers in Charlie's Angels, Stacey Sutton in A View to Kill, Sheena in Sheena, Kiri in The Beastmaster, and as Mitch Pinciotti on That 70s Show from 1998 to 2004. On December 24, 2020, Roberts fell out of bed and could not get up, following intestinal pain and breathing difficulties that began on a hike the day before. She was taken to Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles and was later placed on a ventilator. It was initially reported that Roberts died on January 3, 2021, after her partner Lance O'Brien told her manager that he had visited her in the hospital and said goodbye. O'Brien later clarified that this was an end-of-life visit. He had not been permitted to see her during her hospitalization due to the COVID-19 pandemic, but was invited to return when Roberts was taken off life support. She was critically ill from a urinary tract infection that entered her organs and bloodstream, leading to a blood infection made worse due to Roberts' history of hepatitis C. After the premature reports, O'Brien was informed by the hospital that she died in the evening of January 4th and confirmed this to the media on January 5th. Last Thursday, we lost American actress and singer Marion Ramsey. Born May 10th, 1947 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, she was a regular on the series Cause, but was best known for her role as the soft-spoken officer Laverne Hooks in the Police Academy films. Later, she appeared in the films Recipe for Disaster and Return to Babylon, and in the television films for sci-fi, such as Lavalantula and To Lava To Lantula. After a short illness, Marion Ramsey died on January 7, 2021. On that same Thursday, we lost American professional baseball pitcher and manager Tommy Lasorda. Born Thomas Charles Lasorda 
on September 22, 1927, in Norristown, Pennsylvania. He managed the Los Angeles Dodgers of MLB from 1976 through 1996. He was inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a manager in 1997. Lasorda played in MLB for the Dodgers in 1954 and 1955 and for the Kansas City Athletics in 1956. He coached for the Dodgers from 1973 through 1976 before taking over as manager. Lasorda won two World Series championships as manager of the Dodgers and was named the manager of the year of the National League twice. The Dodgers retired his number two. On November 8, 2020, Lasorda was hospitalized for heart problems and was reported to be in serious condition in intensive care. The Dodgers didn't make the announcement public about his hospitalization until a week later. On December 1, 2020, Lasorda was taken out of the intensive care unit as his condition continued to improve. After being released from the hospital on January 5, 2021, he entered sudden cardiac arrest at his home two days later and was rushed back to the hospital, where he was pronounced dead that night. He was 93. Numerous buildings in Los Angeles were illuminated in blue in tribute to Lasorda, including City Hall, Staples Center, and the Bank of California Stadium at Dodger Stadium. Flags were flown at half-mass. Willie McCovey was an American professional baseball player. Born Willie Lee McCovey on January 10, 1938 in Mobile, Alabama, he played in Major League Baseball as a first baseman from 1959 to 1980, most notably as a member of the San Francisco Giants, for whom he played for 19 seasons. McCovey also played for the San Diego Padres and Oakland Athletics in the latter part of his MLB career. A fearsome left-handed power hitter at the time of his retirement in 1980, McCovey ranked second only to Babe Ruth in career home runs among left-handed batters and seventh overall. As of 2020, he ranks 20th overall on baseball's all-time home run list. He was a six-time All-Star, three-time home run champion, MVP, and was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1986 in his first year of eligibility, only, only the 16th man so honored at the time. McCovey was known as a Deadpool line drive hitter, causing some teams to employ a shift against him. McCovey was called the scariest hitter in baseball by pitcher Bob Gibson, seconded by similarly feared slugger Reggie Jackson. McCovey hit 521 home runs, 231 of them in Candlestick Park, the most in that park by any player. A home run he hit on September 16, 1966, was described as the longest ever hit in that stadium. In his later years, McCovey dealt with several health issues, including atrial fibrillation and an infection in 2015 that nearly killed him. After his career ended, he endured several knee surgeries, which left him in a wheelchair, and he was hospitalized several times. McCovey died at the age of 80 at Stanford University Medical Center on October 31, 2018, after battling ongoing health issues. He had been hospitalized for an infection late the previous week. His longtime friend and fellow Hall of Famer Joe Morgan was at his bedside. A public memorial service for McCovey was held at AT&T Park on November 8, 2018. Rest easy, y'all. On this day in 1983, the show Fraggle Rock premiered. 
Fraggle Rock, also known as Jim Henson's Fraggle Rock or Fraggle Rock with Jim Henson's Muppets, is a children's puppet television series about interconnected societies of Muppet creatures created by Jim Henson. An international co-production of Canada, the United Kingdom, and the United States, Fraggle Rock was co-produced by British television company Television South, TVS, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, CBC, U.S. pay television service Home Box Office, or HBO, and Henson Associates. Unlike Sesame Street, which had been created for a single market and later adapted for international markets, Fraggle Rock was intended from the start to be an international production, and the entire show was constructed with this in mind. Henson described the Fraggle Rock series as a high-energy, raucous musical romp. It's a lot of silliness. It's wonderful. The program proved accessible to audiences of all ages. It used the fantasy creatures as an allegory to deal with serious issues such as prejudice, spirituality, personal identity, the environment, and social conflict. The Frackles were supposed to be called Woozles. This name idea changed when the production team realized the Woozles moniker was already used in Winnie the Pooh. The working title was Fraggle Hill originally, but was renamed Fraggle Rock, which sounded more dynamic. There are four main intelligent anthropomorphic species in the Fraggle Rock environment. Fraggles, Doozers, Gorgs, and Silly Creatures. The Fraggles and Doozers live in a system of natural caves called Fraggle Rock that are filled with all manner of creatures and features and which connect to at least two different areas. The land of the Gorgs, which they consider part of the universe, and outer space where the Silly Creatures, or in other words, humans live. One of the main themes of the series is that, although the three species depend on the other for their survival, they usually fail to communicate due to vast differences in their biology and culture. The series mainly follows the adventures of five fraggles, each of which have their own personality. The pragmatic Gobo, artistic Moki, indecisive Wembley, superstitious Boober, and adventurous Red. Some of the characters' names are film industry in-jokes. For example, Uncle Traveling Matt is a reference to the Traveling Matt technique used with the blue screen to give the impression a character is somewhat they are not, somewhere they are not. Gobo is named after a shaped metal grill placed over a theater light to produce interesting shadows like window shapes and leaves. And Red is a reference to a redhead, another name for a 800-watt film light. Gobo is the leader of the Fraggle Five. Gobo is a brave explorer who takes expeditions into far-off places, including outer space. While he doesn't always believe everything he hears and can sometimes be too determined to do things alone, he has a good heart and rarely backs down from a challenge. He idolizes his uncle, Traveling Matt. Wembley is the youngest of the main Fraggles. Wembley works at the fire department. He's also the firehouse siren. Naive, eager to please, and with a tendency to wimble back and forth, Wembley finds it hard to make decisions and stand up for himself, things he learns about as the series goes on. Wembley admires Gobo, his best friend, immensely. Red is a tomboy and sports expert. Red loves to play and have fun. Her job is to clean the pool in the middle of Fraggle Rock. She can be quick-tempered and a bit too eager to do things on her own, but she has a good heart and rarely gives up when pursuing a goal. Red admires Moki sincerely and is overjoyed when the two become roommates later in the series. She also has a crush on Gobo. Moki is the den mother of the Fraggle Five. She's artistic, creative, and always willing to help others. Because of this, she can put everyone else's needs above her own, to her detriment, or not realize when others don't need her help. Moki's job is to pick radishes in the Gorg's garden. She becomes Red's roommate later in the series to her delight. Boober is a grumpy but good-hearted laundromat worker. Boober takes joy in what others find boring. While he has many superstitions and fears, he's willing to step up when push comes to shove, and his negative attitude can help him see real trouble coming. He also loves to cook. 
Boober has a secret fun side that he keeps on the bottom, named Sidebottom, who sometimes comes out to party. Uncle Traveling Matt is Gobo's uncle and fellow explorer. He discovers outer space and brings back postcards, regaling the fraggles of his travels. In season four, he moves back into the caves. Marjorie the Trash Heap is a living, talking pile of refuse. The Trash Heap is the source of all the Fraggles' wisdom. She is the only one who knows how all of their worlds intersect. The Fraggles act like kids, but they have jobs and live pretty much independently. No visible parents, but they have an uncle traveling Matt, and it would suggest that they must have some sort of family system. Do Fraggles even age or mature at the same rate as humans? It's actually pretty curious that they never address this sort of thing. Fraggle life cycles and such. An early concept sketch suggests that they lay eggs and they do look rather bird-like, so maybe they reach their adult size within a year or two and reach actual maturity in another year or two, meaning Red, Gobo, and company are young by human standards. There were actually plans of including Fraggle births and life cycles in the show, but the creators changed their minds somewhere around mid-first season and decided not to address the issue at all. So all we get in the actual show is the storyteller's vague reference to a fraggle being hatched in the first season episode, The Terrible Tunnel, which is somewhat contradicted in the second season where it's revealed that most of the fraggles don't know what an egg is. So either fraggle eggs are extremely different from normal eggs or they hatch out of rocks or something. The Fraggles, being the land-owning gentry, exploit the Doozers as a source of free public works and agriculture, often both at once, since Fraggles like to eat Doozer-built structures and selectively breed the Doozers for labor through a horrific eugenics program until the resulting Doozers enjoy nothing but working and are all but incapable of defying the tyrannical rule of their Fraggle masters. In fact, Doozers may actually be descended from lower-class Fraggles. Moki thought the same thing in one episode, which is why she started a movement to stop eating the Doozer's constructions. She didn't realize until later that Doozer's have a drive, a pathological need to build. They don't build things for the Fraggles, they build them to build. Their society revolves around work and industry like the Fraggles revolves around fun and relaxing. With no one eating or destroying their work, they ran out of room to build, and instead of being happy about it, they were planning to leave Fraggle Rock. They're not slaves, they coexist in a symbiotic relationship with the Fraggles, both of their economies working for the other. They want the Fraggles to eat what they build, so they can keep building, essentially using the Fraggles to stop their society from falling apart from overexpansion. And Fraggles don't breed them, such effort would go way beyond their laid-back way of life, nor do they have much of a class system. A common theme, in fact, is that everything is connected, as they say, radishes, doozers, Fraggles, gorgs. The Doozers actually consider the Fraggles to be the lower life form, and while they acknowledge that they need them around, they generally just ignore them or view them with a patronizing attitude. In fact, Doozer parents frighten their children with the old story of the Doozer who didn't work, which states that Doozers who refuse to work turn into Fraggles. While all adult Doozers agree that this story isn't true, the concept of turning into a Fraggle is clearly horrifying to them. The series' triumph, by far, was being able to express all of this on screen without being ambulicious or insulting the intelligence of its young audience. By the second season, there wasn't an issue they wouldn't tackle. The writers refused to oversimplify any individual issue and instead simply illustrated the consequences and inherent difficulties of different actions and relationships. Though the Fraggles do learn important lessons, they are rarely self-conscious about it. And the best part, the series is a lot of fun, with wall-to-wall -wall music and engaging characters in a fantastic, well-realized setting, making it a prime example of 
the kind of show you like as a kid, but get as an adult. It also contains some of the most astonishing and ingenuous special effects ever devised for a Muppet series. The ideals of friendship, being true to yourself, and learning to love those who are incredibly different were the cornerstones of Jim Henson's work throughout his career, and he considered Fraggle Rock to be one of the purest and most successful expressions of that vision. And in turn, many Henson fans have agreed that Fraggle Rock may be his masterpiece. A Cable Ace Award winner, the show was a massive commercial as well as critical success. It's said to be one of the chief reasons behind HBO's growth during the 80s. The first spin-off record album of the songs from the show earned a Grammy nomination, and in the UK, it was popular enough for a single release of the theme song to get into the top 40. And while it didn't end war in general, it was dubbed into over a dozen languages and aired in over 90 nations around the globe, and it was the first Western show broadcast in the Soviet Union four days before the Berlin Wall came down, no less. Happy 38th anniversary, Fraggle Rock. Thank you, Jim Henson. drama television series created by David Chase. The story revolves around Tony Soprano, a New Jersey-based Italian-American mobster, portraying the difficulties that he faces as he tries to balance his family life with his role as the leader of a criminal organization. These are explored during his therapy sessions with psychiatrist Jennifer Melfi. The series features Tony's family members, mafia colleagues, and rivals in prominent roles, most notably his wife, Carmela, and his protege-slash-distant cousin, Christopher Maltesani. The pilot was ordered in 1997. The show premiered on HBO on January 10, 1999. The series ran for six seasons, totaling 86 episodes, until June 10, 2007. Broadcast syndication followed in the U.S. and internationally. The Sopranos was produced by HBO, Chase Films, and Brad Gray Television. It was primarily filmed at Silver Cup Studios in Long Island City, in Queens, New York City, and on location in New Jersey. The executive producers throughout the show's run were David Chase, Brad Gray, Robin Green, Mitchell Burgess, Eileen Landris, Terrence Winter, and Matthew Weiner. The Sopranos is widely regarded as one of the greatest television series of all time. The series won a multitude of awards, including Peabody Awards for its first two seasons, 21 Primetime Emmy Awards, and five Golden Globe Awards. It has been the subject of critical analysis, controversy, and parody, and has spawned books, a video game, soundtrack albums, and assorted merchandise. 
Several members of the show's cast and crew were largely unknown to the public, but have since had successful careers. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America named The Sopranos the best written TV series of all time, while TV Guide ranked it the best television series of all time. In 2016, the series ranked first in the Rolling Stone list of 100 greatest TV shows of all time. Set in New Jersey and New York City between 1998 and 2007, the series follows Tony Soprano, a New Jersey-based Italian-American mobster who tries to balance his family life with his role as boss of the Soprano family. Suffering from panic attacks, Tony engages in therapy sessions with psychiatrist Jennifer Melfi, off and on throughout the series. Tony eventually finds himself at odds with his uncle Junior, his wife Carmela, other mobsters within the Soprano family, and the New York City-based Lupertazzi family, putting his life at risk. The story of The Sopranos was initially conceived as a feature film about a mobster in therapy having problems with his mother. Chase got some input from his manager, Lloyd Braun, and decided to adapt it into a television series. He signed a development deal in 1995 with production company Brillstein Gray and wrote the original pilot script. He drew heavily from his personal life and his experiences growing up in New Jersey, and has stated that he tried to apply his own family dynamic to mobsters. For instance, the tumultuous relationship between series protagonist Tony Soprano and his mother Livia is partially based on Chase's relationship with his own mother. He was also in psychotherapy at the time and modeled the character of Jennifer Melfi after his own psychiatrist. Chase and producer Brad Gray pitched The Sopranos to several networks. Fox showed interest but passed on it after Chase presented them the pilot script. They eventually pitched the show to Chris Albright, president of HBO Original Programming, who decided to finance a pilot episode which was shot in 1997. Chase directed it himself. They finished the pilot and showed it to HBO executives, but the show was put on hold for several months. During this time, Chase, who had experienced frustration for a long period with being unable to break out of the TV genre and into film, considered asking HBO for additional funding to shoot 45 more minutes of footage and release The Sopranos as a feature film. In December 1997, HBO decided to produce the series and ordered 12 more episodes for a 13-episode season. The show premiered on HBO on January 10th, 1999 with the pilot, The Sopranos. The main cast was put together through a process of auditions and readings. Actors often did not know whether Chase liked their performances or not. Michael Imperioli beat out several actors for the part of Christopher Maltesani. He said that Chase has a poker face, so I thought he wasn't into me, and he kept giving me notes and having me try it again, which often is a sign that you're not doing it right. Chase said that he wanted Imperioli because he had seen Goodfellas. James Gandolfini was invited to audition for the part of Tony Soprano after casting director Susan Fitzgerald saw a short clip of his performance in the 1993 film True Romance. Lorraine Bracco played the role of mob wife Karen Hill in Goodfellas, and she was originally asked to play the role of Carmela Soprano. She took the role of Dr. Jennifer Melfi instead because she wanted to try something different and felt that the part of the highly educated Dr. Melfi would be more of a challenge for her. Tony Sirico has a criminal history, and he signed on to play Pauly Walnuts, so long as his character was not to be a rat. Sirico had originally auditioned for the role of Uncle Junior with Frank Vincent, but Dominic Chanese landed the role. Chase was impressed with Stephen Van Zandt's humorous appearance and presence after seeing him induct the Rascals into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1997 and invited him to audition. Van Zandt, a guitarist in Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, had never acted before. He auditioned for the role of Tony Soprano, but HBO felt that the role should go to an experienced actor, so Chase wrote a new part for him. 
Van Zandt eventually agreed to star in the show as Consigliere Silvio Dante, and his real-life spouse Maureen was cast as his on-screen wife, Gabriella. The cast of the debut season of the series consisted largely unknown actors, with the exception of Bracco, Chianese, and Nancy Marchand, but many cast members were noted for their acting ability and received mainstream attention for their performances. Subsequent seasons saw established actors Joe Pantoliano, Robert Lott, Robert Loja, Steve Buscemi, and Frank Vincent joining the starring cast, along with well-known actors in recurring roles, such as Peter Bogdanovich, John Hurd, Robert Patrick, Peter Rigard, Annabella Ciora, and David Strathorn. Several well-known actors appeared in one or two episodes, such as Lauren Bacall, Daniel Baldwin, Annette Bening, Polly Bergen, Sandra Bernhard, Charles S. Dutton, John Favreau, Janine Garofalo, Hal Holbrook, Ben Kingsley, Linda Lavin, Juliana Margulies, Sidney Pollack, and Wilmer Valderrama. The Sopranos features a large cast of characters, many of whom get significant amounts of character development. Some only appear in certain seasons, while other, others appear throughout the entire series. All characters were created by David Chase, unless otherwise noted. Tony Soprano is the series' protagonist. He's one of the capos of the New Jersey-based Demio crime family. At the beginning of the series, he eventually becomes its undisputed boss. He is also the patriarch of the Soprano household. Throughout the series, Tony struggles to balance the conflicting requirements of his family with those of the Mafia family he controls. Because he is prone to bouts of clinical depression after a fainting spell, Tony's physician refers him for treatment from psychiatrist Dr. Jennifer Melfi in the show's first episode. She treats Tony to the best of her ability, even though they routinely clash over various issues. Melfi is usually thoughtful, rational, and humane, a stark contrast to Tony's personality. Tony, a serial womanizer, occasionally divulges his sexual attraction to Dr. Melfi. Melfi arbors some degree of attraction to Tony too, but never admits or acts on it. Melfi is far more attracted to Tony's dangerousness and power. She is drawn to the challenge of helping such an unusual client and naively assumes that their doctor-patient relationship will not affect her personal life in any way. Adding to Tony's complicated life is his relationship with his wife Carmela, which is strained by his constant infidelity and her struggle to reconcile the reality of Tony's business, of which she is often in denial, with the affluent lifestyle and higher social status it brings her. Both have up and down relationships with their two children, the intelligent but rebellious Meadow and underachiever Anthony Jr. or AJ, whose everyday teenage issues are further complicated by their eventual knowledge of their father's criminal activities and reputation. The starring cast includes members of Tony's extended family, including his disapproving, manipulative mother, Livia, his aimless, histrionic older sister, Janice, his paternal uncle, Corrado Jr. Soprano, nominal boss of the crime family following the death of then-acting boss Jackie April Sr., his maternal cousin Tony Blundetto, and Christopher Maltesani, who is often referred to as Tony's nephew but is actually his cousin by marriage. Both Livia and Janice are scheming, treacherous, shrewd manipulators with major yet unaddressed psychological issues of their own. The single-mindedly ambitious Uncle Junior is chronically frustrated by having not been made boss of the Demio family, despite old-school mob traditions entitling him to the position by seniority. He feels his authority is perpetually undermined by Tony's greater influence in the organization and barely contains his seething jealousy at having to watch both his younger brother and now Tony leapfrog him in the organization. As their professional tensions escalate, Uncle Junior employs increasingly desperate, behind-the-scenes measures to solve the problems with Tony, who still idolizes his uncle, but wants to retain Junior's affection and approval. 
Uncle Junior and Christopher are fixtures in Tony's real family, as well as his crime family, so their actions in one realm often create further conflicts in the other. Christopher, an entitled, insecure Demio associate who is as ambitious as he is insubordinate and incompetent, is also a chronic substance abuser. Tony Blundetto is a well-respected Demio family soldier who returns after completing a lengthy prison sentence. He leaves prison committed to going straight to Tony's dismay, but also has an intense violent streak. Those in Tony's closest circle within the Demio crime family include Silvio Dante. Silvio is Tony's concierge and best friend. He runs the family strip club headquarters and other businesses. Paulie Walnuts Guglieri, a tough, short-tempered, aging soldier who is fiercely loyal to Tony, and Salvatore Big Pussy Bon Ponciero, a veteran gangster who runs an automotive body shop. Polly Walnuts and Big Pussy have worked with Tony and his father. Also in Tony's criminal organization are Patsy Parisi and Furio Gianta. Patsy is a soft-spoken soldier with a head for figures. Furio, an Italian national who joins the family later in the series, serves as Tony's violent enforcer and bodyguard. Tony Sirico, who played Polly Walnuts, really did have mob connections at one time. This is referenced in the show when he mentions his association with the Gambinos during the 70s. Ray Liotta was in consideration for the roles of Tony Soprano and Ralph Cifaretto, but turned them both down. He will appear in the prequel film of The Sopranos called The Many Saints of Newark. Lorraine Bracco was originally asked to play the role of Carmela Soprano, but she felt that the part was too similar to her character in Goodfellas. She decided the role of Dr. Melfi would be more challenging. And Stevie Van Zandt was considered for Tony Soprano, while Michael Rispoli was the first to read for the part. Both were given other roles when James Gandolfini was chosen. James Gandolfini had to put on 35 pounds that he lost for the film The Mexican because it was decided that the audience wouldn't accept a thin Tony. David Chase had to fight for the network to let him have Tony murder someone because the execs were unsure that the audience would still sympathize with Tony after such an act. Chase prevailed and the execs never messed with the show again. It is said that during some scenes, James Gandolfini inserted a small stone in his shoe to anger him, making him play the role of Tony Soprano more authentically. He would also stay awake all night for some of the breakfast scenes to achieve a tired look. The Sopranos has been hailed by many critics as the greatest and most groundbreaking television series of all time. The writing, acting, and directing have been singled out for praise. The show has also received considerable attention from critics and journalists for its technical merit, musical selections, cinematography, and willingness to deal with difficult and controversial subjects including crime, family, gender roles, mental illness, and America and Italian-American culture. The Sopranos is credited for creating a new era in the mafia genre, deviating from the traditional dramatized image of the gangster in favor of a simpler, more accurate reflection of ordinary day-to-day -day mob life in a suburb. The series sheds light in Italian family dynamics through the depiction of Tony's tumultuous relationship with his mother. Edie Falco's character Carmela Soprano is praised in Kristen Gordon's essay, Why I Love Carmela Soprano, for challenging Italian-American gender roles. New Yorker editor David Remnick described The Sopranos as mirroring the mindless com commerce and conception of modern America. The Sopranos has been called perhaps the greatest pop culture masterpiece of its day by Vanity Fair. Remnick called the show the richest achievement in the history of television. 
In 2002, TV Guide ranked The Sopranos fifth on their list of top 50 TV shows of all time, while the series was only in its fourth season. In 2007, Channel 4 named The Sopranos the greatest television series of all time. The first season of the series received overwhelmingly positive reviews. Following its initial airing in 1999, the New York Times stated that The Sopranos just may be the greatest work of American pop culture of the last quarter century. In 2007, Pop Matters wrote, The debut season of The Sopranos remains the crowning achievement of American television. The series is often seen as the show that launched the new golden age of adult television in the 2000s and the 2010s, inspiring The Wire, Mad Men, and Breaking Bad, becoming an era of defining milestone series, famous for its morally compromised protagonists, violence, and occasionally surreal style that came to define the period. Certain episodes have frequently been singled out by critics as the show's best, like The Pilot, The Sopranos, College, I Dream of Jeannie Casamano, Employee of the Month, Pine Barrens, Irregular Around the Margins, Kennedy and Heidi, Join the Club, Whitecaps, The Second Coming, and Blue Comet, to name a few. The Sopranos won and was nominated for many awards throughout its original broadcast. It was nominated for the Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Drama Series in every year it was eligible, and is the first cable TV series to receive a nomination for the award. After being nominated for and losing the award in 1999, 2000, 2001, and 2003, the Sopranos won the award in 2004 and again in 2007. Its 2004 win made The Sopranos the first series on a cable network to win the award, while its 2007 win made the show the first drama series since Upstairs Downstairs in 1977 to win the award after it finished airing. The show earned 21 nominations for outstanding writing for a drama series and won the award six times, with creator David Chase receiving three awards. The Sopranos won at least one Emmy Award for acting in every eligible year except 2006 and 2007. James Gandolfini and Edie Falco were each nominated six times for outstanding lead actor and actress, respectively, both winning a total of three awards. Joe Pantoliano won an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in 2003, and Michael Imperioli and Andrea De Matteo also won Emmys in 2004 for their supporting roles on the show. Other actors who have received Emmy nominations for the series include Lorraine Bracco, Dominic Chianese, Nancy Marchand, Aida Totoro, Tim Daly, John Hurd, Annabella Sierra, and Steve Buscemi, who was also nominated for directing the episode Pine Barrens. In 1999 and 2000, The Sopranos earned two consecutive George Foster Peabody Awards. Only two other series have won the award in consecutive years, Northern Exposure in 91 and 92, and West Wing in 99 and 2000. The show also received numerous nominations at the Golden Globe Awards, winning the award for Best Drama Series in 2000, and major Guild Awards for directors, producers, writers, and actors. The Sopranos had a significant effect on the shape of American television industry. It has been characterized by critics as one of the most influential artistic works of the 2000s, and has been cited as helping to turn serial television into a legitimate art form on the same level as feature films, literature, and theater. Time Magazine wrote in 2007, This mafia saga showed just how complex and involving TV storytelling could be, inspiring an explosion of ambitious dramas on cable and off. Pop Matters described The Sopranos as the most influential television drama ever. No one-hour drama series has had a bigger impact on how stories are told on the small screen, or more influence on what kind of fare we've been offered by an ever-growing array of television networks. They've also stated that, widely influential, 
for revealing that Cable could, could accommodate complex series about dark characters. The Sopranos ushered in Six Feet Under, The Shield, Rescue Me, and Big Love. Breaking Bad creator Vince Gilligan said in 2013, shortly after Gandolfini's death, without Tony Soprano, there would be no Walter White. The series helped establish HBO as producers of critically acclaimed and commercially successful original television series. Michael Flaherty, The Hollywood Reporter, had stated, The Sopranos helped launch HBO's reputation as a destination for talent looking for cutting-edge original series work. Happy 22nd Anniversary, Sopranos. History. In 1949, the first Jewish family show, Goldbergs, premieres on CBS. In 1958, Jerry Lee Lewis' Great Balls of Fire reaches number one on the UK pop charts. In 1964, Introducing the Beatles is released. It's the first Beatles album released in the US. In 1983, the TV show Fraggle Rock premieres on HBO. In 1990, Time Warner is formed. In 1995, The Late Late Show with Tom Snyder premieres on CBS at 12.30 a.m. Eastern. And on that same day, Smith & Wesson releases their debut album, The Shining. In 1997, the 4,000th episode of Entertainment Tonight airs. And on that same day, James Brown receives a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And on that same day, The PJs premiere on Fox, Batman Beyond premieres on WB Kids, and The Sopranos, starring James Gandolfini as mobster Tony Soprano, debuts on HBO. In 2000, Bret Hart wrestles in what turns out to be the final match of his career when he defends the WCW World Heavyweight Championship against Kevin Nash on WCW Monday Nitro. In 2010, Fox's animated sitcom The Simpsons celebrates 20 years on the air as a weekly television series with the episode Once Upon a Time in Springfield, Anne Hathaway, Jackie Mason, and Eartha Kitt are guest voices. A one-hour 20th anniversary special hosted by Morgan Spurlock follows the episode. In 2012, Yo Gotti releases Live from the Kitchen. It debuted at number 12 on the Billboard 200 with the singles Five Star and You Can Get It On. In 2013, after only one season, Britney Spears announces that she will leave The X Factor amid rumors and tensions between her and the show after the conclusion of the second season. In 2018, Baton Rouge rapper Kevin Gates was released from prison on parole after serving nine months of a 30-month sentence for gun possession. In 2019, Lady Gaga apologizes for working with R. Kelly in light of the docuseries Surviving R. Kelly. And in 2020, Moneybag Yo! releases Time Served. It debuted at number three on the Billboard 200. So that wraps up another edition of Over the Culture Podcast. Y'all make sure you stay safe from COVID and crazy crackers. Also, check out my new show, Happened in the 90s, with my friend Matt on Thursdays. All right, y'all be cool. Peace.